Our guest today, Dr. Ginger Campbell, has been running her brain science podcast since 2006. And anyone who studies the topic of neuroscience would have come across her work as a pioneer where she launched her podcast all those years ago because she believes that understanding how our brain really works is essential for being a good citizen in the 21st century. Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, where we cover the science-based evidence behind social and emotional learning for schools and emotional intelligence training in the workplace with tools, ideas, and strategies that we can all use for immediate results with our brain in mind. I'm Andrea Samadhi, an author and an educator with a passion for learning, specifically on the topics of health, well-being, and productivity, and launched this podcast to share how important an understanding of our brain is for our everyday life and results using the most current brain research. On today's episode 243, we'll be speaking with Dr. Virginia Ginger Campbell, who's a physician, author, and science communicator who was just inducted into the 2022 Podcast Hall of Fame. She also runs the Books and Ideas podcast that includes diverse guests, including science fiction writers. Dr. Campbell spent over 20 years as an emergency physician in rural Alabama, and in 2014, she went back to the University of Alabama in Birmingham, where she completed a fellowship in palliative medicine, which is an approach aimed at optimizing quality of life and mitigating suffering among people with serious, complex, and often terminal illnesses. She now practices palliative medicine in Birmingham, Alabama, and enjoys sharing her passion for science, especially neuroscience. When I was referred to Dr. Campbell for this interview, I almost seriously jumped out of my chair and wrote back quickly, knowing how timely our conversation would be, as I was at the time just editing our recent interview with physician and neurologist, Dr. Doyon. I know that Dr. Ginger will open our eyes even further to help us to all connect the dots with our brain as it relates to our health and well-being. Let's welcome Dr. Ginger Campbell and get right into her thoughts about brain science and see what we'll learn from her deep and vast experience to help us to all take our understanding of the brain and our health to new heights. Welcome, Dr. Ginger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Where have we reached you? What part of the country are you in? <laughs> I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. Well, wonderful. That's where I thought you'd be. Dr. Ginger, from my email to you, I'm sure you know that I'm a follower of your work as a pioneer, not only in the podcasting world, but also someone who has successfully been helping people to understand how their brain works, which is why we launched this podcast. Can you just take us back to where your career began? What need did you see? And how did you find your way to podcasting in those early days when I'm sure that you needed to create your own code and your own website code? Well, I, I, I was not at the point of the creating your own RSS feed. That's the 2004 people. Okay. And I started in 2006. 
but uh, I did have to do a lot with my own, you know, website. That was very time consuming. What happened was um, I discovered podcasting in 2005, July of 2005, when it first appeared in iTunes. I saw it in, in you know, my iTunes app and um, started listening to some shows. And I was like, this is the, you know, really cool. I want to do this. Of course, the first thing I did was record my vo voice and hated it and, you know, said, okay, well, I'm not going to do this. Plus, it took me a while to come up with an idea because I didn't really want, uh, I was practicing ER physician at the time. I didn't really want to do a podcast about medicine. That would be, you know, like work, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I was listening to other shows and I used to listen to this show called the sci-fi zone, which was about the intersection of science fiction and philosophy. And so back in those days, you know, discussion forums were still popular pre Facebook and Twitter. And I was on the discussion forum for this show and people would be talking about the brain and I had been reading about neuroscience just it was the thing I was I'm an autodidact I would that's what I was studying and um because of my interest in consciousness I discovered uh philosophy of mind and that there had been a lot of progress in neuroscience since I had last looked at it back in the 70s when I was a graduate student um so anyway I'm on this discussion forum and people are always putting these posts up about the brain that are wrong. Right. And so I keep going, well, if you would just read X, Y, Z book, you would know this. And if you just would read a by ABC book, you would know that. And so finally <laughs> the um, host says to me, well, why don't you just do a book review for my podcast? Mm -hmm. And um, that's, I did a review of Jeff Hawkins book on intelligence it was only like 10 minutes long, but when I recorded it, it was like, you know, an adrenaline rush. I was like, this is it. This is it. I could do this and I'll never run out of material. And this was um, before neuroscience was hot the way it is now, but I could just see that this was a, a topic that, you know, I could, you know, be able to do for a long time. So that's, that's, that's where it started. I didn't originally imagine interviewing people, but early on, um, I discovered that um, I was pretty good at it and that it was a better format because listening to the con a conversation makes the material a lot more accessible to many people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I had no idea either when I began just how the interest would spread. And, you know, you hear from people and you see people listening in different parts of the world. And it's really surprising. It, it took me off guard. It's really gratifying when you get an email from somebody that tells you that um, it made a difference in their life. Mm -hmm. Well, now that we have an understanding of your background and how you got here, I wanted to begin our questions today by telling you, first of all, how completely honored I am to have you on this podcast. Um, you know, especially as a leader in the field of neuroscience, anytime I'm looking at, you know, what other podcasts are out there, you're at the top of the list. So I've always known who you were. Um, and I then I recently listened to your most recent episode on how culture creates emotions. And then now I'm aware of this thing that I do whenever I'm interviewing a guest, 
I talk about something that they're talented with, and I talk about it in the, uh, in the backstory before I begun. I start highlighting, you know, that this person's talents. And now I can see that that thing that I do might make some people uncomfortable, that thing of, you know, highlighting how they're special. And I never thought about how our emotions are culturally connected. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder, what are some of the top aha moments of learning that you've had as the host of the Brain Science Podcast? And why do you think that understanding how our brain works is essential for being a good citizen in the 21st century? Okay. Uh, Is it okay if we split those into two different questions? Yes. Um, For me, probably the biggest well, learning about embodied cognition, you know, the connection between the, the mind um, and the body and, and the brain. I mean, I was interested in what I used to call mind body medicine before I, you know, got into this area. But now I realize that um, they're inseparable. I mean, the brain has to interact with the body to create the mind. So you're not a brain in a vat. You know, it's it, they're they're um, they're just they can't be separated. Um, but for me, in terms of personal meaning, realizing um, how individual our perception of things is, was the most um, life-changing. Because I realized that you know each of us, based on our neuroscience that we've learned, is that each of us perceives the world in a slightly different manner. And our reality is is created by our brain. Um, Michael Graziano, one of my favorite guests, has said that our brain kind of gives us this little, he calls it a stick figure version of reality, because it tells us the stuff we need to know to to, um, survive. So, for example, it feels like um, our mind is something non-physical because our brain doesn't need to tell us anything about its inner workings. Those aren't important to our survival. So our sense of what it's doing, it feels like it's, like I said, non-physical. But um, so each one of us has a different perception. And like, if I'm taking care of a patient, and this is where I really notice it, I realize that, you know, sometimes we're not on the same page. I mean, their perception of things is so different from mine um, based on, and and the and the truth of it is, as much as we might think, well, I know I'm right. Every single one of us believes our perception is the accurate one. Yet that can't be true. So we must all be somewhat wrong and somewhat right. But to me, that's that's the most um, has had the most impact um, in trying to find a way to reach the person, even though our perceptions are different. And that's, sometimes that seems like an impossible challenge. But in terms of why I think that understanding neuroscience is essential in the 21st century, I prefer a different example. Um, and that is, um, how memory works. Okay. We, we now know that our memory is not like a videotape of an exact recording of what happened. It's a dynamic thing. Every time we recall a memory, our, we basically recreate that memory. And things that have happened in between get stuck in there. And we can't tell the difference. Um, and so our memories get 
you might say, changed and distorted even over time. And that's really important to understand. It can be something as simple as you and your sibling talking about your childhood and remembering things very differently, which I have noticed with my sister, or it could be a, something more important, like accusing a political candidate of lying because a story he tells has changed somewhat over time, even though that's just the way our brain works. It also doesn't necessarily mean you have dementia <laughs> if your story changed. Um, uh, you know, there's a famous study that was done at the time of the Challenger disaster about the idea of flashbulb memories, which is the idea that when something happens in a very highly emotional state, it's like, you know, etched in your brain and you'll never forget it. That's the way it feels. So what they did was they had, uh, at the time of the Challenger disaster, they, I think it was college students because you know how psychology studies are. They had um, these students, um, you know, write down, you know, where they were and what they felt and all, and all right when the challenge, when they, when they heard about the Challenger disaster, then they re-interviewed them like two years later and only 25% of them gave stories that completely matched their original account. There was even a guy, I got this from uh, Robert Burton's um, book, but there was a guy who actually said, well, um, I know that that's what I wrote, but what I remember now is what really happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. It's, it's amazing what happens when we go back and think, and it's, especially if you have someone to compare what you're thinking right. with right. everyone saying, no, I see it. I remember completely different. And then you tell your version and it's always different. And it has huge implications, especially in the justice system. Um, so Elizabeth Loftus is a psychologist who um, has done a lot of work um, with the role of memory. She showed um, that it's very easy to instill false memories into people um, and since then, she's really been working on the implications to the justice system, especially in terms of eyewitness testimony. And I actually saw her do a live talk once where she basically showed a series of pictures and most of us picked the wrong one by the end. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, 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 that's why I sort of think that we would be better off if we did, like I said, we just, um, you know, recorded our first memory of a crime, for example, and then that's what they used. Because the more you talk to other people about an event, the more you incorporate their memory of the event into yours. And you can't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the weird thing is you'd think, well, you could tell which memories were accurate and which ones aren't, like because it feels emotionally right or whatever. But it turns out that that is not true. So what is that feeling of knowing that we have? Where does that come from? You know, like when we have this aha moment when we're doing a problem, mm -hmm. we know we're certain. It, what is it? Yeah. I, um, as I mentioned, Robert Burton has, you know, written a lot about this, and I always have a trouble getting the name of his book right, so I'm not going to try, but... Um, it seems to be done at an unconscious level, because if you think about the idea of, well, you're making a decision and you decide to sleep on it mm -hmm. and then you wake up and you're sure, you know, oh, this is what I'm going to do. Um, 
so it, it's really part of a larger phenomenon, which is that most of what our brain does is unconscious. Now, you could ask, well, why would we have this feeling of certainty? You know, what's its purpose? Well, if you think about it, most of the time we're having to make decisions with incomplete information. And if we weren't able to feel sure about our choices, we would be frozen by indecision. And you've probably known people like that. My, my sister had this college roommate who couldn't decide whether to go to the movies or not. I know that's not important. It just sticks out in my mind because I think it was the first time I was exposed to somebody who was totally indecisive. Um, so that's a learned it, skill, though, you know. Right. And I think her mother must have made all her choices for her. And, you know, from a stand from a survival standpoint, if you saw something that might be a snake, it's probably better that you think it is a snake and take action rather than you sit around thinking about whether it's a snake or a lion or a tiger or whatever you're favorite wild animal of the story is. <laughs> so probably the people who, you know, were overly, you know, stepped to it, you know, those were the ones that made ancestors and the ones that sat around going, hmm, it might be a snake, you know. Yep. They were the ones that got bit. Hmm. What about some questions that we know science has yet to prove? What about our intuition? Where does that come in? Can we trust it? Or is it also unreliable, like our thoughts and our memories? I think it's something that we need to test when we have a chance. And this also gets back to the perception part, because I got a chance to interview some scientists who study, you know, how um, magicians, you know, manipulate a attention to make us see things that aren't really happening in, in magic. And um, so our brain likes to take shortcuts, you know, and intuition is one of those shortcuts, which again, like you're walking down a dark street and you have a bad feeling. It's much better to trust your gut than to stop and think about it. But if you are making a choice about, you know, something, you know, really um, complicated, you know, like, making a career choice or something, there's something to be said for also doing, you know, Daniel, Daniel Kahneman's famous slow thinking where you, although I don't necessarily buy that model on any literal sense, but, you know, take some time to sit down and, you know, put down your pros and cons about your decision. And, and then, you know, not necessarily like Benjamin Franklin said, you know, add them up, but at least make an, a, a conscious look at them individually. And then that's, that's where I say, Hey, now it's time to sleep on it. <laughs> you know, cause really in the end, usually we're making decisions that cannot be quantified. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I, I guess I would say that I, I don't discount intuition, but I don't think it's, some, it's something magical. And I think that, you know, based on what we know about how the brain works, it makes sense that when you have a chance to um, use both your intuition and your more critical thinking abilities that you should try to use both skills. And where does interoception come in or listening to our body or those signals? Is it kind of attached to intuition or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that is something that is 
less well understood, I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's still a lot of controversy among, because for one thing, there's not that many people studying interoception. So its exact role is less, um, probably less appreciated than it should be. Um, uh, where the controversy comes in is whether that, the thing that you detect from your body, whether it's a result of what you're thinking versus it's causing what you're thinking. Right. Um, uh, and so I don't think we really have a clear cut winner in that debate at this point. It, that's kind of my position on that. So if I'm still trying to explore this thing called certainty that I know you've written your book on, and then we go to our dreams. Um, I can get some incredible answers in my dreams to things. You know, like you just said, sleep on it. I can ask myself a question before I go to sleep, and then I'll get an answer directly in my dream. But what do you think about the validity of finding answers this way? I, you know, I, I'm kind of um, an agnostic about that subject. I sort of think that when other people you know, like analysts try to um, analyze people's dreams for various, you know, um, archetypes and things like that, that that doesn't really stand up to scientific scrutiny uh, because it's one of those, it's, um, you might say, not falsifiable kinds of problems. However, when you as an individual say to me, my dreams are informative and helpful to me. I'm not going to argue with that um, because in a way that's you using your intuition in your own way, you know, whereas like for me, you know, dreams are not a meaningful source of guidance, but that doesn't mean that they're not for you. Well, have you ever heard of people having premonitions of things like just a flash of something like they see something in their head and then maybe it happens years later, but they saw it clearly and they trusted it or didn't trust it. Does, mm -hmm. Where does that fall into certainty? That's yeah. I mean, it's like when you say, Oh, this, me and this guy have the same um, birthday. That must be some, you know, kind of, you know, important synchronicity, but there's only 365 days in the year. So the odds of another person having your same birthday, pretty high, actually. Um, so, you know, it's really hard. That gets again, and I hate to be repetitive, but into the sort of thing that you can't really falsify because we tend to remember things like that. I mean, like for all the sort of little flashes of ideas and things that we see, the ones we remember are the ones that something happens. So it's like, when someone says, oh, I was just thinking of this person and they called. Well, if you were just thinking of this person and they didn't call, you probably wouldn't go, well, I was thinking of them, but they didn't call. You know, it's it's kind of like confirmation bias in a way. That's not really the same thing, but because our mind remembers, we remember these um, things that go together right? It's just the way our brains work. Back to how our brains work. Yes. Got it. So I took a stab at creating an episode on how our emotions impact learning memory of the brain. Um, mm -hmm. uh, 
And then on this episode, I talk a little bit about how we can remember the details of September 11th, 2001. But if you were to ask me what I ate for breakfast the day before September 10th, I have no idea. Um, so why does emotion seem to make memory stick? And are they reliable if, if we have a memory with emotion attached? Yeah, I, I think the reason clearly is that we have emotions about things that matter. And it's important to remember things that matter. Um, lessons we learn that have high emotional content, we want to remember them. So the why part, um, I think, is, is at least you can come up with a reasonable explanation of the why part. Um, I think I've already covered the reliability part. I'm older than you, so I the first memory like that I have is of President Kennedy being assassinated. And um, part of my memory about that is thinking that I saw uh, Jack Ruby shoot Lee Harvey Oswald on live TV. Now, this is something that really did happen because everybody sat in front of the TV for three solid days and he really did do it on live TV. But after I learned about how memory works, I realized I don't actually know whether I actually saw it in real time, mm -hmm. you know, or even though I have a very strong memory of it, it's entirely possible that what really happened was I saw a replay of it. Right. And it became, I saw it in real life. So, um, but it's still part of my memory of it, even though I don't now know. And it's interesting. The people who write memoirs are very aware of this now, a lot of them. And when you read that, I, I like memoirs. And so I've noticed the change in the way people write over the last 30 years. People have started to write things like, um, I, this is how I remember it. I know that it may not be exactly right because that's that's what we have learned. So putting this all together, what are some important things to know about how we think? When, when I go back to an interview I did with Howard Rankin, he wrote a book that really talked about how what we think is, uh, we think therefore we're wrong kind of idea. So what should we take away from all of this to learn from? Right. I think that I would come up with something very similar, although I didn't get it from him. I really got it again from Robert Burton. I really think we need to be more tolerant of um, both to ourselves and others uh, in terms of, you know, there's things about how our brains work that lead to conflict. Some of it could be avoided if we could let go of the idea that I must be right. You know, the fact that I am certain about a certain thing means that everyone else that doesn't agree with me is somehow bad. Okay. Now, if it really is true, as it seems to be from our current level of scientific knowledge, that, you know, we really aren't, uh, you know, you don't, there's a lot of things you believe that you really don't choose. I mean, because they're happening at that unconscious level. Uh, you know, the most obvious example is belief or non-belief in God. I mean, you've got a lot of people who, most people in this argument very, feel very strongly one way or the other, yet it's definitely from a scientific point of view, an unprovable either way. 
Uh, so if we could be more tolerant of the fact that someone can believe something different than us without being calling them a bad person. Now, someone may be a bad person, but it's not caused by what they believe. <laughs> um, then I think we could get along a lot better. And I mean, we certainly live in a very polarized you know, time that's partly being driven by this, you don't believe the same thing as I am and therefore you're bad kind of attitude. So that's to me the most important idea. Well, that's helpful for sure. What, what about understanding what is neuroscience and what is pseudoscience? Is there a quick and easy way to check? Like, like you've been saying a lot of times, it, it, if it's falsifiable, it's science, right? If we can prove. Right. And there's a lot of debate about, about whether that is the best um, measurement, but um in philosophy of science, not everyone agrees with that idea of falsifiability. That was Karl Popper's idea. Um, you know, Thomas Kuhn thought it was all about paradigm shifting. And once a paradigm shifted, you just had to wait for all the people who believed the old one to die out and then people would change their mind. Um, but uh, and a more important principle would be, can you test it? Does it make a testable prediction? If you think back to the olden days of like, say, Galileo, who's usually seen as, you know, the prototypical early scientist, you know, you have to say, okay, I've got, he had a math formula, right? That said this should happen. And then he could test it. Um, it's not always math, though. It doesn't have to be mathematical to be science. That's an important uh, point. But you need to be able to, if it, if you're going to call it science, it needs to be making a prediction about what's going to happen. And and when you see pseudoscience, um, and um, you know, of course, Karl Popper's favorite target was Freud, because. You could he could always you could always twist it around and say it predict you know that it fit and that's the problem it wasn't something that's where the falsifiable part comes in you have to at least make a prediction that could theoretically be wrong you don't design and this is the part that most people really don't understand when you're when you're trying to test a theory it's not about designing an experiment to prove your theory it's actually about designing an experiment that shows your theory is wrong. And that's a big, a really big difference. And, and when I was studying uh, this neuroscience certification course with a researcher, I always wanted to prove that what I was doing was right. Like, you know, how does this help the education field? And I wanted to show that it was right. And he kept saying, you want to prove that it it's wrong. And I couldn't get my head around what he was saying. It was so different from what I wanted to do. Right. And and you learn the wrong idea in school because I think it's a miracle anyone becomes a scientist after going through our education system because the way they teach science is so bad. And one of the things they do is that they make you do experiments like, you know, in chemistry and lab where you already know the answer. Right. right. And so you expect to get a certain answer. And if you don't get that answer because it's something that was figured out, you know, hundreds of years ago then it's wrong. So you don't even get any sense of how science is really done. So that contributes to the fact people don't understand how science really works. And that's why I really like interviewing scientists and, and, and 
they the good ones will tell you about when things happened that were surprises. Things happened that weren't what they expected. That's, you know, that's what makes real scientists excited is when they get something like, you know, the famous saying, oh, that's strange. You know, it's not getting the, the results you expected. Um, of course, the problem is that the guys who pay for science are also not scientists. So they have to figure out a way to play a game so that they, you know, can keep getting funded, even though they may, their experiment may fail. So that's a whole, that's a whole other, you know, issue. I mean, the reality is science is done by people. So even though, you know, the ideal is one thing, you have a hypothesis, you check, you, you test it, it's proven wrong. You say, oh, I was wrong. And you change your mind. Okay. That's how it ought to work. But you spent 40 years believing in this theory and you, you know, right. Yeah. You're a human being too. You're probably not, you know, going to be too enthusiastic about that. That may be why a lot of the major discoveries are made by young scientists who aren't, you know, too tied to what's already thought to be true. Interesting. So but, you know, that's, that's the thing, you know, like with COVID people, not understanding how science works makes it hard for them to appreciate that, yes, guidelines are going to change as we learn different things. You know, we, we, science is not about having all the answers and changing your mind in science is a sign of honesty, not, it's not, it's not a character flaw. So, um, yeah. So we were talking beforehand that, my whole goal with this podcast was to help those in the field of education. That's where it started. And then I was trying to explain the research as it goes into our workplace environment, as well as sports. But let's just, if we take, you know, the education field and my goal was to say, you know, this can help, but not everybody believes that science in the classroom or neuroscience uh, an understanding of the brain is the way to go. What have you seen with helping us to understand how a student learns when we understand our brain? Right. I mean, it seems like, um, you know, I'm not an educator, so I don't have a feel for, you know, what percentage of people are in the various camps. Um, it, you know, it seems like traditionally there's been this, that tradition has been important. Right. And um, and of course, the scientific method is not part of the typical educators training. So that can be an obstacle. And then we see people come along with, you know, ideas that aren't proven that pop into, you know, as a person in Alabama, I take it as a joke that it's California that always tries the crazy stuff first without testing it in education. Also, yeah. uh, having been a victim of new math and, and also this phase when they decided that weren't going to teach grammar, um, you know, we need to find a balance. I mean, we need to have things tested before we pop them into the classroom, but we also need to be able to get them in the classroom when the science is there. And that certainly is the case for, for a lot of principals in education, especially we know a lot about the science of reading now and just that's, you know, that's so basic and, and there's still too many teachers teaching methods that 
you know, aren't scientific valid, scientifically valid. And the only reason they appear to rework, I think, and this is just my opinion, not science, is because a lot of us learn how to read on our own. <laughs> and so it makes the fact that these crazy teaching methods don't work sort of in, invisible. Yep. Right. Because a lot of us are teacher proof when it comes to learning to read. And so it, ta it, it makes it harder to detect when a method is not working. Absolutely. 100%. So is there anything important in my questions to you that we've missed, Dr. Ginger? If we think about, you know, the book that you wrote, your podcast, you've got two podcasts, but you think about what you've been focused on. Have I missed something important that you'd like to share? Not that pops into my head. Um, I would just, you know, say that if you're curious about how your brain works you know you know i hope that that you'll check out my show i think it complements yours my philosophy is not so much i'm going to tell you how to use the information that's not my focus my focus is on um you know just making the basic facts easy to understand for regular people you don't need any science background uh, i guess i kind of uh, I'm sort of idealistic. I sort of trust the science to speak for itself. But I've also learned that the scientists themselves, when they're given really a chance, um, can do a really good job of, of um, sharing their passion. And to gain access to your newsletter, I signed up for it. I texted 55444 and put brain science, all one word. Is that the best way or there's another way as well to go to your website? Sorry. Right. You can go to brainsciencepodcast.com, but the text brain science 55444 is really easy if you're a person who texts. I think I'm getting most of my new newsletter signups that way since I started that. But um, uh, yeah, and what you'll get is show notes automatically and it's only once a month. So you're not going to be, you know, dripped to death. I can't stand drip email campaigns, to be honest with you. Um, you know, once in a while I'll send out an announcement about something else, but mostly it's just the show notes. So you um, won't forget uh, or miss a new episode. Well, I'm looking forward to your next episode on education. I'll be sure to tap into it and tie it to this episode. But Dr. Ginger, I want to thank you very much for the work that you've done to pave the way for, first of all, those of us in the podcasting field who came on much later. You've really given me the confidence with this topic of neuroscience that can feel intimidating, but not when you have a an understanding and it gives you a bit of confidence. And I have that for people like you who've paved the way. So thank you, first of all, for that. And then also for helping us to all become better citizens, employees, parents, and even humans as we take this research that you've uncovered. And my focus is to try to help people to apply it and, and, and make it applicable in their life. So uh, I'm now motivated even more to keep learning, exploring, and sharing new ideas and following in your path. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And I did not mention that there's more talents that you have. And I saw it when, uh, when I signed up for your newsletter. And when I signed up for it, it was a beautiful uh 
email that I got that linked to your episode. So I could see where you came in in 2006, you did learn um, how to automate everything. And that's another episode, but I think you've done a beautiful job at automating your podcast. Well, the reality is the tools are much better now than they were 16 years ago. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Ginger. I appreciate you. Thank you. Some final thoughts to close out this episode. I do hope that if you're as interested in neuroscience as I am, that you do take a look at Dr. Ginger's podcast and website. She does have a section for educators that's easy to find with many resources on her website. Today we learned quite a few lessons together, but my biggest takeaway is that we all perceive the world in a slightly different manner. And when we don't see eye to eye with someone else, whether it's in our work environment or our personal relationships, it's important to remember that this is our brain at work. And if we can be more tolerant of the differences we have with others, we'd have less conflict in our lives. Thinking with our brain in mind can really be mind altering. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and taken away something to help you to create more success in your work or personal life, and I'll see you in a few days. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 